the Friendly Maples Lounge, the podcast all about board games, new and old, weird and fun, and our thoughts and feelings about their playability. I'm your host, Jen Flores. And I'm your host, Chris Ingold. And today it's just Chris and I again, and we have some absolutely fantastic games that we're going to be discussing with you today. So yeah, for a start though, Chris, what have you been playing over the last week? Well, over the last couple of weeks, we've really played a couple of games back here at home, and we've also had the first bite or board in the East event for Melbourne Meeples. So at board in the East, we played Expeditions, which is the sequel to Scythe or 1920 mm-hmm. Expeditions, to use its full name. So we played that for the first time competitively. I played it a lot solo because I playtested it, and Stuart, who brought his copy along to board in the East, had also played it a lot solo just because he got the game and was having a go with it. And it's a fantastic solo game, fantastic solo mode, but it was the first time we played that competitively. And that was a really, really, really good game. We had a lot of fun with that. Very interesting. There were bits that are like Scythe, and there's a whole load of it that are nothing like Scythe, but it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful game. Real table hog mind, but beautiful game. So we played that, played a few other little games at Board in the East, and there was lots and lots and lots of other games played at the event. We had also, Joe and I at home, played a couple of games since probably we last spoke, and one was Seize the Bean, the game of building your Berlin cafe and competing with other Berlin cafes for who can be the most hip and happening. Well, we actually had the second Devonshire Society over the weekend, which Mel and I hosted this time. So the ladies of the Melbourne Maple Crew take turns in hosting the Devonshire Society at the Boyd Community Centre in South Bank. And you know what? Such a great venue. I'm really, really glad Tam found that venue because we had a really great crowd. We have such a good time because we have scones and jam and cream and everyone brings snackies along and there's, you know, tea ready there and there's a little cafe next door. It's just such a good spot. So it made for a really friendly, fun day. And we played... The Legend of the Cherry Tree That Only Blossoms Every 11 Years. Yes, that is the name of the actual game. <laughs> it's a really long name for a game, but it's a really cute little game. Have you ever played it before, Chris? I have never even heard of that. Immediately I want to ask, is it Japanese? It is a Japanese game, yeah. <laughs> I thought it, it, it must be. <laughs> it sounds very Japanese legend. It's a risk-taking game. It's very, very, very simple to play and the rules make it sound really, really complicated. But once you actually explain it and you break it down, people go, oh, oh, that's actually really easy. So essentially what you're doing is you've got up to three times during your turn that you can pluck up to eight cherry blossoms out of the bag. So you can just grab eight cherry blossoms out and you're done. That's your turn. But... The second that you pull out three of the same colour, you've exploded and you've lost your turn. So what you're trying to do is put down cherry blossoms in groups of colours both behind and in front of your player board. The ones behind are obviously secret. The ones in front are open for public display and they give you both negative and positive points depending on how many cherry blossoms you have. And then if you get certain combinations, you can put cherry blossoms in front of other people's boards and in front of your board and behind your board and you can move things around. So it's kind of like all those cute little games that I love that can be a little bit competitive just in a fun way. 
and it ends long before you think it's going to and all of a sudden you find holy crap I've got minus three points because I've only got one of that color in front of my board and there's nothing you can do about it so great little game and it only takes about 20 minutes to play so really really good I had another go at cat lady absolutely love cat lady it's a really cute little card game and then there was the game that we wanted to talk a bit longer about and I have been wanting to play this game for such a long time I am a massive period drama fan you know you put you put a period drama in front of me and I will binge watch the whole thing until five o'clock in the morning and then get up for work at seven the next morning you know like I'm that kind of obsessed with a period drama Chris what game are we talking about well, a clue's in the name of the event that Jen was running this weekend, because what more appropriate game to play at the Devonshire Society than a game where the box looks like it has a drawing based upon the Duke of Devonshire's residence over in Derbyshire in the UK, which used to be like a, a few kilometres down from my house back in the olden days when I lived over there. Then Obsession. Such an amazing game. Seriously, after one play, I'm like, I hope someone buys this for my birthday. (laughs) So it's so, so good. Like I have a rule around my birthday that I'm not allowed to buy anything for two months before my birthday, things that I want. And I've been eyeing off this game for so long and I finally got to play it and I love it. And I understand why you were saying to me at BunnyCon you will love this game. You definitely should play it. And I really do. And I wish we'd had a bit of classical music or something playing in the background. And we were halfway through and I was like, I want to host a game like a Devonshire Society that's a costume one so everyone can turn up in their pretty little Regency gowns and we can have a a few games of obsession or do the long version of obsession because that would be so much fun. Because Obsession has, I mean, it's got a number of different ways you can play it. And there's some interesting comparisons with the other game I was talking about earlier, but we'll come back to Seize the Bean later. But Obsession has actually quite a simple flow to it. Uh, I think if to describe the purpose of Obsession, you are a family that has fallen into ill repute. And you need, through making sure that you can marry into money and marry into sort of a, the appropriate respectable company to elevate the status of your family in polite society, which is the plot of like 50%, 60% of like sort of the Bronte novels, Jane Austen, certainly. And so within the, the game of obsession, you're building out and making your estate more impressive, but you have to spend money to do that, to get money in. You need to be able to get attention and more than anything, you need to build up your reputation. You need to get people coming through your doors and so on. So for that, you then need more servants because posher guests need more personal attention. They might need their own lady's maid attending them or their own butler or their own valet or whatever it is. And so you're building out this estate, you're building up your reputation, you're getting a set of sort of followers on who, if they're prestigious, are generally pretty reliable, but they may only turn up to your event if you've got a high enough reputation. If they're not prestigious, they'll turn up, but some of them are right low lowlifes, let's be honest. Yep. And they fill your deck with the right kind of hangers-on that you really didn't want if you're looking to build up the reputation you want. They have their uses occasionally, but they're, you know, they're not always the polite society. Um, I don't know, they're not the people you'd want. And as well. So I I really enjoyed exactly that point that it was quite thematic, very historically accurately, in that 
the people that they were like, "Ooh, this person has a bad reputation. You should definitely not want to hang out with them. Ooh, dear. Were, you know, like the American heiress because how scandalous that you should have American <sighs> money or the nouveau rich people. Terrible, terrible. I got the American heiress and I took the she punt so early good, on. She was, she? <laughs> well, I got her first. Yeah. Right. Me too. And I used her early and I got rid of her and I took the money. And the money was great, but the hit it took to my reputation took me just a little bit too long to claw back. And I probably wasted about sort of five turns in the process of, not five turns, because a turn goes a long way in obsession, maybe about two turns, it clawing back from doing that. And I did have some advantages off the back of it, but it wasn't quite enough. Because when the end came, and at the end of the game, actually having the most built out to stay is the best position to be in, I was a little bit short. And I was pretty much exactly short of Joe's score by the margin that it took to get the final courtship to impress, like the Fairchilds, you know, the elite bachelor and uh, and spinster of the local society uh, where this is set. Um, so I, yeah, that heiress, I was looking at this and going, this is crazy. Oh, I balanced her perfectly. I managed to balance the heiress because every time I played her, I played her with enough reputation from other people that it didn't bring my reputation down. There was only once when I played her and it pulled my reputation down by one. You did good because I only played her once, but I didn't have, you see, I literally got her first. Like she was in my, like not the starter cards, but the very first like new person that I picked up. So I didn't have enough reputation to be able to do that. And I played her so early, I didn't have enough to play something like the drawing room and be able to pick it up. So I that was a little bit of a mistake. I literally got it and I thought, sod it, I'm going to take the money and then kill this card early. I played it straight away, but that left me stuck on one reputation and being only able to use like a handful of cards. So that, that I know for next time. If you have Americans, I, I mean, God forbid, I haven't looked through the deck to see if there's any Australians. Um, Chris, it's Regency era being exported during the Regency era was being exported to the Americas. So, yes, ah. this is why the American heiress was dirty and the oh. new rich and not quite as lovely as the old money. How so they filthy. They talk about money too much, the nouveau rich. Old money don't yeah. talk about money. They just have money. So if we're going to continue um, this kind of like uh, slightly slightly pompous and dodgy accents, which we should both be able to do rather well, having a, a British heritage uh, originally. Um, one of the things I found about Obsession was that it was obsessed with having lots of different ways to play Obsession. And worse of that, I also have the expansion to Obsession, which adds more different ways to play Obsession because there is a pie chart at the front to show you how the victory points are distributed. But if you're not happy with that distribution, you can change it to make it a little bit more flexible. You can make the Fairchilds more mysterious by making sure that you don't know what they're interested in when they come for dinner, which means that you've done your research very badly, not like Bridgerton, where you might have done it very elegantly and had a special writer telling you that they were particularly interested in your sporting uh, facilities. But <laughs> I can't do this for any longer, right? And they, obsession has all these ways, and that's one of the things that also connects it because it was really funny playing Seize the Bean because um, obsession. I mean, it's an amazing game, but it has some particular little foibles. I think from the designer who has tried to do everything to please everybody, 
And I think it's probably done quite a good job of it because I think all the different versions of Obsession are meant to be pretty good. But you've got a standard version and an extended version. So the extended version gives you more time to flesh out your estate. It just makes for a longer game. The standard version is a little bit more short, I think, if you know what you're doing. Yeah. The It also has a Tableau version in the expansion, which makes it more of a pure skill Tableau building game. It's all about trying to reduce the amount of luck in the game. And it has different variants that say, okay, well, do you want to have it so that you get a surprise as to what it is the Fairchilds are interested in? Do you want advance notice of what the Fairchilds are interested in? And then the expansion adds a whole bunch of additional tactics. And it is, I haven't played it yet, but it's well known as one of those expansions that is both really good and is 100% not an expansion to play until you played the game more than once originally because it adds all sorts of little complexities and it's it's a strange one because it's a very thematic game but you can tell that a lot of attention has been paid to making it as precise as possible for euro gamers that like a really precise game and the rules are precise they you know i did actually find a couple of holes in the rules where it didn't Ooh. quite properly explain what was going on so we ended up, as we played through the game, the person that we played with, absolutely lovely Lauren, she forgot to explain at the start of the game that in the last round, it's not based on what the Fairchilds want just in the last round. It's based on your entire board. Had I known that, I would have played the last round differently because if we'd just gone off of the last round, I would have gotten the Fairchild for that round and I would have won by about 20 points. But because Lauren went, oh, you know what? I did that wrong. Actually, it's based on the entire board, but we won't do it that way because, you know, it's your first game. I'm like, no, no, no. You know what? Let's do it properly. I don't care if I sacrifice the win. I want to do this the right way. So even losing the Fairchild by two points, damn it, I still came equal first with Lauren and got 110 points on my first game. So That's I think, pretty good. I think I played it pretty well and I I managed to get out during the game. I picked up a level six uh, ballroom and we should probably explain a little more because we're saying a lot of things that are not going to make a lot of sense to people. So I think Chris sort of touched on it before in that the whole point of obsession is that it's a reputation building game where you're trying to build out your estate. And the way that you're doing that is you have your four family cards and then there is a deck of cards that are a whole bunch of guests that you can invite to come to your estate. Those guests bring things like reputation, money, inviting other guests you know they may have connections with other people so in terms of that era that is quite thematically fabulous because that is exactly what an aristocratic family would do they would always have guests at their estate they would be rubbing shoulders with the right people so that other people thought they were important and making business deals with the right people to get money that they didn't have for themselves so Thematically, absolutely fantastic. Along the way, the game also allows you to improve your estate by buying extra rooms for your estate that you can build onto all the base rooms. And every time you play those rooms, you improve them. So they give you extra points during the game. And in fact, there's only one tile that actually gives you less points by playing it, but the advantage that it gives you during the game 
helps a lot more, I think, than the three points it gives you at the end of the game. So along the way, whilst you're inviting these guests to your estate for all sorts of parties and flower viewings and, you know, art displays and all this sort of thing, you're gaining reputation based on the people that you have around you. And at the end of the game, the amount of reputation that you have gathered gives you points. And that points chart is exponential based on a scale from one to six in just the standard game. And it actually goes up to eight, I believe, in the long play game. So it can make a really big difference at the end of the game. Oh, and there are objectives. At the start of the game as well, you get objectives, which are based on both the rooms that you have or it might be on the amount of money that you have left over at the end of the game or a particular character that you may have attracted. And I just happened to pick up two 11-point objectives and a five-point objective and I got all of them. So it can make a really big difference just balancing off do I really need a huge reputation versus how much can I game these other objectives. It's a great game. I really like it for the fact that there's not just one way of winning because obviously the Fairchilds are basically the marrying Mr Darcy and I made a couple of quips of it's basically extended marrying Mr Darcy and it really is. You know, the, the whole point of the game is you want to marry off your son or your daughter to the male or female Fairchild heir or heiress. And technically it should come out that the person that gets the Fairchild heir or heiress at the end of the game should be the game winner. But it just happened that at the end of our game, the person who got to marry Mr. Fairchild didn't win. Thematically, that would make sense. But in practice, it it doesn't because I think there are other aspects, aren't there, where you manage to be able to win the game. You say you can do it via objectives, which are much more abstract, but you can also do it by reputation because you might be less reputable but marry the uh, marry the heiress, but the reputation might be enough or you might be wealthier, and so otherwise you've made it. The objectives are less thematic, but they work really nicely because you've got all these random objectives and some of them are quite tricky to get and a bit lucky and some of them are much easier to strategize for. And I did the same thing after having my reputation hit. At the end of the game, I basically found a couple of objectives I could really go for to make the points up. And you gain a certain amount of these objectives at the beginning of the game, but then you'll lose one every season and then you gain another two in the middle of the game. So basically you start off with five you end up with three. At one point in the game, I think you have six. And so you're constantly looking at the different things that are available to you to try and chase and thinking, is it worth trying to go for this? And what that does is it gives you a lot of flexibility. And I really like the way that Obsession uses those end of game objectives. I think it's really clever and is so much more elegant than in loads of other games where they just chuck it in. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, and we've got these endgame objectives things just because every other game has and it gives you another route to victory. Lazy, boomf. Obsession is not lazy. No, in not fact, at all. It is clearly the product of Obsession. I was trying to think, why is it called this? And actually, it looks like the kind of name. You look, you see it in the nice font on the box. You think, oh, Obsession, because it's an obsession with reputation. It's not. I think it's an obsession of the game designer with the game. I called it obsession because until I got this thing out, this was a burning obsession. And it's just like everything in it has been obsessed over. Everything in it 
has been thought out. And I know you said there was like holes in the rules. I found that one, but we didn't realize that was a rule until the end, because at the end of it, we went, oh, heck, what do we do in the last courtship? Is it different? And opened the book and found the place. And the rules, they're dense. They're very dense. They're very, very dense. And there was only, I can't even remember what it was now, but there was one particular point that we were trying to play and we couldn't find the clarification on the rule for it until right at the end of the game, Lauren was looking at something else in the book and ended up finding, oh, actually this is how we should have played it. Oh, I know what it was. So you know how there's the cards that allow you to get the underbutler? Yes. So I purchased right at the start of the game the underbutler. And I said, okay, cool. Does that mean I just take the underbutler? And she goes, no, you have to actually then play it as an activity to get the underbutler. And I'm like, that seems wasteful. Like you're spending a turn buying it and then spending a turn getting the underbutler. And then we went through and she goes, oh, no, whoops, we did this wrong you should have just got the underbutler. And I'm like, cool. So that means I've missed an entire turn in the game. And she's like, mm. and I'm like, cool. Can we have said then that instead of doing that, I would have hired more servants instead. And so as a result of that, it meant that essentially we retroactively went back and she was about to steal another, uh, a green one and a purple one. I think they're the the handmaid. Valet and the lady's maid. Thank you. The valet mm-hmm. and the lady's maid. And she was about to yoink two more and I'm like, no, no, I would have grabbed those. Thank you very much. And <laughs> I think that's literally the only thing that basically we got a little bit wrong during the game, but we managed to fix it up. But the rule was sort of somewhere a little bit more hidden and obscure. But seriously, I have never seen a game with as many player aids as that game has. And I understand why it has so many player aids. It really does need them. As clunky as it is, I think it probably took us half an hour at least of going over the rules and getting an explanation as to how to play. But I think once you do figure out how to play and you know what you're doing, if you are somebody who likes a bit of a heavier game, you would absolutely love Obsession. I think Obsession is a work of genius. It's really, really, really well designed. It's one of those games where actually I think playing the extended version is probably the right way to play it. But I do think that playing the standard version first time is a good idea because it probably does take a bit of learning. It's definitely a game where you get to the end of and you think, I want to play it again and try this or have a go at that straight away. It doesn't make you feel like you're complete and that you could, oh, yeah, I'll play it again in six months, right? You want to get it back to the table really, really fast. I need yeah. a copy. <laughs> um, it has a glossary, which is really useful. It's a reference guide. Um, as Jen said, it's also got all those sort of player aids. And it is a game where, and I don't normally recommend this because I actually like diving into rule books. And a rule book isn't badly written, right? It's really precise. It gives you loads of information. I would 100% recommend watching a video on how to play Obsession oh, first. Yes. Look for one, find one with lots of thumbs up, and then pick the shortest one with lots of thumbs up because it is worth looking at the rule book. But if you go into Obsession knowing how the flow works and then you look at the rules, then you'll be able to pick out and go, right, I can see the detail. One of the things that it does, and it's a little off-putting to when you're first going through it, Joe and I were going through it, I kept saying, it's not as complicated as it looks, honest. It shows you that each turn has eight stages. 
eight stages in your yeah. turn. Oh my God, this is ridiculous. I mean, what if it was a four-player game? We're going to be sat around here doing nothing forever. Eight stages. It breaks down into three stages so that you know exactly what you're doing, what most games would put in one. Yeah. Right? So it's a little bit like kind of like shove your things to the left, have a look at your board and see if anything happens. It probably doesn't. Put your card on for your activity, invite your guests, stick your servants on the guests, take the favours back from it. Now that's effectively take the action, take payment for the action. So that's two. Buy something, off you go. Yeah, right? so that's it's, it. <laughs> it's like, so it's actually quite straightforward and it runs quite simply. And there's a whole bunch of events on the board that are quite simple as well. But the the way it's pitched is in a lot of detail. And in the rule book, whenever it takes those eight stages, it talks through all the different edge cases that could happen with each set of the tiles, except for a few where it says, go and look them up in another bit of the book. So there is a little bit of that that is, it's useful. And the glossary is worth its weight in gold because you only can reference stuff in there. But a video helps because it's really not that complicated a game to learn. I think the expansion's got some really like quite clever different uses of its new servants and so on. And that I think gets more head doing. And I definitely want to play the base game again once, maybe even twice more before I start getting that out. Uh, but it is meant to be really good as well. You would have been so proud of me, Chris, because I meant, like I said, I managed to get the ballroom right before... Out of, and that was out of the, the builder's market. So the builder's market, normally during a turn, you're allowed to buy one extra room to put in your house. The builder's market allows you to buy multiple rooms. But the builder's then, holiday. The builder's holiday, thank you. And then a couple of rounds later, there is another, is it national holiday, that allows you to play any tile regardless of reputation level, even if you don't have that reputation yet. I never went over reputation four during the entire game. The ballroom is reputation six. It's quite hard to get your reputation to six. So I managed to play the ballroom during the national holiday because I waited. I was like, yes, if I get this before the national holiday, I'm going to be able to do it. I still had the heiress in my hand at that point. So I managed to set it up that playing this ballroom, I ended up with $1,300 and eight reputation and two extra guests out of one turn. Right? That's pretty cool. <laughs> I, I got, so I had my first prestige guest when I was playing the other day was a reputation six. And I was like, oh, thank you. I spent ages waiting for a prestige guest. And it was a little bit of like swingy luck in the game. It's worth making a note of that. You can have a draw where you end up with a card where you just think, ugh. There's going to be more points at the end. But it's quite good when you can. And unsurprisingly, I played that at exactly that moment. I had this card, Reputation 6, and I think it was the Duke of something. I think it's one of the, the most prestigious, prestigious guests there. But I did the same thing on the national holiday. I brought them out and I ramped up my reputation and I think funds, I think he gave me like 600 bucks and I had to get the loads and loads of money objective. So in the end, I wasn't able to yes. make much use of the builders all day, but I had to get loads of money objective. And that that's worth if, 11 points because mm, I had that as well. Mm. I had the, if you end the game with 1200 pounds, it gives you 11 extra points. And I was going right into the last bit going, is it worth it for me to have reputation for or do I sacrifice and go to reputation three, but end up with the 11 point objective? So the difference between scoring wise, reputation three and reputation four is six points 
to 10 points. So it was only going to be four points extra for me to end the game on reputation four and miss out on the 11 points for ending with $1,200. So I deliberately sacked two reputation points to get 200 pounds to get, because that's a special action you can take during the game is to sack reputation to get 200 pounds. And I did that in the very last turn of the game just to make sure I ended the game on 1,200 points and got those extra 11 points. And that is what made the difference between me and Lauren drawing the game on 110 points each versus me having lost the game by four or five points. So it's well and truly worth it to look at that kind of thing. I'm impressed by uh, your exact memory of scoring points because I oh, can't even yeah. remember the exact <laughs> scores. Oh, yeah, I, I know. Well, we discussed this last week, didn't we? It's like that competitive spirit. You know yes. where it went. <laughs> you'd remember them if you'd have lost by a margin, but you might not remember them if you'd have lost by more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, put it out of mind, you know. Kind of, but I think Obsession is a, it's a really, really high quality game. I'm it is obsessed. a heavier game. It's got such a unique thing. It's probably appealing to a lot of people that don't like the themes in other games and maybe haven't played as many other games, but it is a little bit heavier. But at the same point, I don't think it's difficult to absorb. It does, I think, have a bit of a learning curve. I think that's the thing. It's got a learning curve. And some of that learning curve is good. You play the game, you have a satisfying game, but you realize there's all sorts of other things you could have done. That kind of learning curve is fine. Right? That's not a learning curve that stops you playing the game. It has a little bit of obtuseness to get used to. And... I think in terms of accessibility, some of the design, the the cards, and I think the font on the cards can sometimes be a little tricky to read unless you've got the lights up high or so on because it's that kind of elegant cursive text which is not always clear and, and might not be as clear for everybody. But outside of that, it's, it's a really, really well-designed game. I really love the fact that it is clearly a competitive game like it is there's no cooperation in this game whatsoever but it's done in a way that is so regency era spiky you know it's the thing that the things that it's making you compete against because you want to keep your objectives close to your chest which is quite thematic you know it it means that Nobody really knows what anybody else is trying to achieve. And as much as you all know you're trying to achieve attracting the Fairchilds because you definitely want to have them in your side and that's going to give you extra points during the game, those little extra objectives can make such a difference and there's enough other stuff going on that if somebody happens to take the room that you saw come out in the building market that you particularly want, there's always going to be something else that'll give you the same kind of points and you it's not 100% linear. Like there's a lot of flexibility in how you can achieve the things that you want to achieve during the game. So, yeah, I think it's really, really fantastic. I love that some of the guest cards give you negative points. I love that some of the guests come out and they've got these lovely little, you know, descriptions at the bottom as to why they might be scandalous. Oh, dear. You know, and why they've they got such a fantastic reputation. I think I got one that was a vicontesse or something and she had a fabulous reputation because she throws the best tea parties in all the land, you know, and it was just, it's so silly, but in 
the best way possible that just tickles all my little pink bits and made me squeal with joy and be like, anyone want to play it again? You know. <laughs> so I, I love games like this. And there's, um, there's a, a, a particular thing in, in board games that I love. And I mean, by saying I love it, I love it so deeply that there's a board game that I've been off and on designing for the last sort of like three years. And eventually it'll, it'll get to a point where it gets up some steam. I occasionally I get it prototyped. I find something I don't like about it or I need to change. And then I try and build it up again. It usually takes me a while to sort of get around to picking that up. So it'll, it'll come at some point, but it hasn't changed in terms of its theme in, in those years. I, I understand what it's made up of. And that is really heavily built around this one thing as my core concept, which is this idea about collecting and building stories out of all these different characters who come in. And actually, yeah, you might be collecting points, building an engine, whatever it is, but you've got these different characters. And when these characters come out on cards, that's one thing. When these characters come on cards next to other characters, you can't help but look at them and a little story appears in your head just because they're together. And in the game I was designing, they're building actual stories. One of the big inspirations for that was an old game, really old game, like from the 1960s, potentially originally, like called Taxi. And in Taxi, you're taking these uh, characters in taxi cabs around London. And it's not a roll and move game. It's a kind of move around the map game, trying to find the fastest route. And it's a bit broken because once you've learned the map, you always know what the fastest route is, right? It's just a matter of trying to pick the right fares and so on. But it's really funny because there's all these ridiculously wacky characters. You're trying to work out why they're going to there. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So I really, really, really go for anything that does that. And Obsession does that a bit as well, because it's got all these wacky characters that come through. And there's a great game by a local Leeds designer. It's, it's not sort of widely available called Top Hats and Treachery, which does a similar thing uh, with a bit of a gloom style mechanic where you're all trying to get the most reputable sort of guests in your hotel. Uh, and that's Victorian era. Now, there's a fantastic game that Joe and I were coincidentally playing the week before we played Obsession. And I mentioned this earlier, and this game is called Seize the Bean. And Seize the Bean is a game in which you are building and developing your own coffee shop in Berlin. Very specifically in Berlin, it's very, very heavily rooted in its location. And in your coffee shop, you've all got the same starter customers. Your customers uh, that you start with will be effectively your grandma, grandpa, or a kind of lazy friend, and uh, you know one of your popular friends who can bring in other customers, right? Same people. But after that, you start building up an engine by attracting customers of all sorts of different types. They could be cyclists, tourists, uh, startup business ones, criminals, uh, bicycle fiends, um, you know, party animals. Now, here's where it gets a little bit crazy. You only use six different customer types in every game, but Seize the Bean got a little bit silly. In fact, when it was on Kickstarter, I think it ran two and a half years late because of this. They put in about 23, I think it was 22 different types of customer, which you can then combine into more different ways of playing the game than you could ever do in like 10 lifetimes. Oh my God. And so they went variant crazy, right? This book has an entire book of variants and it went a little bit bonkers, right? You know, and how it actually did all, you know, this version, this version, this way of playing, this way of playing. They got crazy with some of the components. It has some of the best components I've ever seen in a game. So you've got kind of actual coffee beans, as your coffee. And one of the cool things is that when you collect coffee beans as a resource, even though it's a Euro game, you can either get exactly seven or you use the scoop and see if you can scoop more than seven and balance them over to your placemat, in which case you've got more. <laughs> oh, right? I love it. And, and it's got little milk cartons, uh, resin milk cartons for, um, uh, for, for you know, milk. And it's got resin sugar cubes that look like real sugar cubes. Oh my God. For milk. And even better, 
right? They have this concept of snacks where as you know, the game progresses, you can get skills in producing certain snacks, donuts, croissants, cakes, or you can produce like, you know, kind of a mocha pot coffees or a speciality like single origin coffees or whatever it is. And all of these things after a while give you a little bit more oomph, you know, because you can make them cheaper because you put like special things into your pantry that allow you to produce them faster. And one of the real cool accessories that they built was resin snacks. So, Seize the beam, if you buy this little extra, has little resin pink donuts and little ah. resin croissants, and they are gorgeous. But here's the thing. They weren't meant for the default version of the game. And in fact, they were only put in because people thought it would be cool to have them. Then they said, we want to play with them. So they invented a mode to play with them. I insist on playing that mode because it is more thematic, but it does make the game brutal. Because if you sit there and decide that you're not going to bake croissants, you're going to bake cake, and then your customers want croissants, and you're like, God, you've got angry customers and you've got screwed. So it makes it harder. But at the same point, it just feels so much more thematic to bake them some croissants. And actually, I haven't got enough of these resin bits to factor everyone. I have to use little cardboard tokens because I need to buy another pack of these things for there to ever be enough to play with properly. But you have to because they're so gorgeous. And the reason it was fascinating was in Seize the Bean, you're building your reputation up by creating a set of characters. Some of those characters actually can have a damaging effect because they're not as reputable and they bring your cafe down. Like if you've got this, uh, your old smelly grandpa, you can use your old smelly grandpa to get rid of a customer you don't want because he's so smelly, he puts them off. (laughs) And every single one of these characters and accessories and power-ups is individually different. There's hundreds of them because there's separate packs for every different type you can have. And in the book, there is a list of 30 Berlin suburbs I think it's about 30 and there is a set combination of six for each one of them and one of them is a really take thatty type game one of them is a really multiplayer solitaire type game one of them is like it's absurd and the level of obsession that went into obsession to build a game where you're building up the reputation of your establishment by inviting the right guests to build in the right reputation to bring in better guests to bring in more money and all of that stuff to be the best stately home in obsession that same same obsession has gone into seize the beam and it's a similar kind of game in many many ways if obsession goes and strokes the shark Sees the bean, takes a pogo <laughs> stick and leaps so far over the top of it, it lands heads first in a desert island with its head stuck in the sand and its legs in the air. <laughs> and the designer of Seize the Bean, I think after they've spent ages kind of like getting the damn thing out in the first place, has said that there's going to be a second edition on the way and they are actually going to cut it back, potentially not removing stuff from the game, but cutting it back and saying, look, there's a bunch of extra stuff in here. This is how we recommend you play the basic game. We're not going to say, oh, you could do this and you could do that and you could do that and we've made it right. They're just going to say, here's how to play the damn game because I think people are getting lost yeah. in working out how to play it. But it's great fun. And I've, I've never seen as much obsession put into a game as with Seize the Bean, but obsession comes close in obsession to Seize the Bean. And they're both games about very, very similar things. And so it's weird how obsessed can people get about this kind of game? I'm very obsessed with obsession after one play, so I can imagine I'm going to have to play Seize the Bean with you at some point now, and I'm pretty sure I'll get as obsessed with Seize the Bean as I am with obsession. Uh, But do you know what I'm obsessed with? A word from our sponsors. That. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, board games that try and simulate escape rooms, but first... 
away from our sponsors. <laughs> we have some super exciting news to share. For the first time ever, Friendly Maples Lounge is going live. As of the 31st of August, that's Thursday night, next week at 7pm, Friendly Maples Lounge will be live. Sign up now. There will be a link in the description of the podcast where you can sign up to get your link so that you can join us live, give us feedback. There may even be some sneaky giveaways and we have some more super exciting news to share. So to be the first to know what's going on with Meeples, what we've been blasting all over Facebook telling you is super exciting and coming, join us for our live podcast for the very first time we're so excited next thursday and you can find out first what is the big exciting news that we're wanting to share with you and welcome back to the friendly meeples lounge where we were just getting into a somewhat clumsy segue into our other topic of the podcast today where we are going to talk about escape rooms that aren't escape rooms because they're made of paper I love a good escape room. I really do. I love the actual in-person ones. I love the online ones. There are a lot of really great online ones that came out during COVID as well. But I do love a good card game escape room or a good board game escape room as well. It's been amazing, I think, how how escape rooms have evolved because I fundamentally they – they're like a real-life version of old, I guess classically old video games like Myst, which really, really, really shows my age. But Myst was like the kind of the amazing game from back in the early 90s that everyone had to show off the fact that they had Windows 95. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, kind of that, that, that fantastic opinion of technology because it basically gave you this beautiful art and then you'd move from place to place and see abstract puzzles. And then as you unkeyed things and unlock things, you'd solve other abstract puzzles. And a bit like one of those kind of like, you know, um, puzzle boxes where you find a key and you pull a lever and so on. And it's all these different things going on. But I guess over time, we've, we we had the big boom in escape rooms where suddenly you found that you could do this sort of thing for real. You could bring a team in. You could like play with opening locks, um, hidden bolts, solving clues. Uh, there's even, I remember the in the UK and because of COVID we never got to go it was one of the things we really wanted to go for a team outing to they put a thing where you could go and do the Crystal Maze so the Crystal Maze was an old uh, sort of like TV show had Richard O'Brien who uh, wrote the Rocky Horror Show used to host it in the UK and I don't know did it ever make it to Australia? No it didn't but I saw it over in the UK so I remember it and it was really good it was it was amazing. So the Crystal Maze was like basically this kind of like set of challenges that people would run through, but they were all quite escape from me type challenges. And that was sort of back in the 80s. I grew up watching that. So once like real life escape rooms came out, I was like obsessed. Like, this is a brilliant idea. This is and, and it's exploded. And it exploded and then it kind of dipped down again. Because post COVID it's come back. Yeah. 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 And post COVID it's come back, right? Which is really, really, really great. And there's a lot of very experimental escape rooms. There's a lot of really clever stuff. A lot of them will theme stuff around movies and so on. But then this weird thing came about where people started saying, well, okay, we can do this in a board game. And I know what my first reaction was. My first reaction was, nah, surely not. Do you know, mine was as well. As much as I'm obsessed with escape rooms, 
And, you know, the very first time I actually did a physical in-person escape room, we came this close to winning. And it was one of the hardest escape rooms in Melbourne at the time that only a very small handful of people had won. And having that kind of, you know, laser competitive focus, I looked at the fact that someone was like, you can play an escape room as a card game and went, that's going to be shit. That's not going to give you the same kind of experience as an adrenaline pumping. You've only got so much time. The alien's going to eat the spaceship if you don't get this clue. You know, it. I was like, it couldn't possibly give you that kind of feeling. There's no way. Were you as wrong as I was, Chris? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's. I mean, let's be let's be absolutely sort of realistic about this. If a real life escape room has got a thing where basically some big lights glow off, you know, they go and you slide down the slide. And then there's an actor like dressed up as Dracula or something, and he kind of like goes at you or whatever. That ain't going to happen in a card game. Absolutely. But I've been amazed by some of the creativity that has come out of so many of these games and how successful they've been. So I was trying to write the list because we were going out and say, okay, which ones have we played? And it's like, well, then it's exit, unlock, undo. Time Stories is pretty much an escape room. Escape room, the game. Escape Room in a Box, the gang. There's a whole bunch of games by a publisher called Post Curious who've done like The Emerald Flame and Adrift and The Tale of Ord, I think it was originally called, and The Light in the Mist uh, recently. Uh, there's an absolutely phenomenal little game, which is actually my favourite at the moment, and it's, it is gettable, but it's called Lost in the Shuffle, which is a pack of playing cards. But there is a whole set of puzzles in this, and there is a little bit of a website that you can go into to fill in the answers to the puzzles. And then there's ways of leveling up as you go through and scoring points. And the imagination that has gone into this, that is genuinely a standard pack of playing cards, all doctored with art, is incredible. And it's also one of the cheapest that you could possibly get, even with postage to like Australia or wherever from America. It's it's fantastic. So Lost in the Shuffle by Spencer Beeb is one I would I would recommend hands down. And if anyone wants to know what it's like, it's like somebody designing one of these things really like the computer game Portal and its sense that of humor. Sounds cool. Right. And that that is the way of thinking of it. And uh, if if that makes you go, ooh, yes, because some of these things take themselves too seriously, that's great. There's advent calendars. Like exit made Three, I think. Um, in Australia, we've had two because I think the rest of the world is one year behind Germany. What's interesting, Jen, is that they're all quite different in they style. Are. Amazingly so. I'm a massive fan of the Unlock escape rooms because they're replayable. And what I mean by replayable is you can only play it yourself once, um, but we have a, a group of friends that we sort of trade our Unlock games among and, you know, we it, it's no secret at this point, we run gaming events. So I actually find them really fantastic to take to the gaming events because if somebody says, look, we just need a fairly short game, an Unlock game is great for that because you can go and play it. You know, you'll just be playing for an hour because there's that time limit on it. But it's really active. It's really fun. It really gets the adrenaline pumping. But every single Unlock game that I have played has been completely different. Only one Unlock that I've actually played really sucked. But when you have a look on the Unlock website, um, all of them have reviews or just in general, I think you can Google search Unlock playthroughs. 
And this particular one unlock has a whole bunch of people who are like, this is terrible, never play this one. It's absolutely like the clues are just too obscure in it and there's three or four clues that just completely lead you in the wrong direction. But every other unlock I've played has been phenomenal. Such a hard thing to do, judging puzzles uh, to get them right. And because I guess it's a little bit like doing murder mystery party nights, isn't it, as well? And the kind of clues yeah. for those. And I've I've actually written, no, I have written a couple, but I was, there's one, the very first one that I did, I actually had to make up on the spot because back in uh, the mid-90s, uh, I was at university and we were doing uh, University Rag Week, which is kind of like lots of charity events and so forth. And we'd run a few things and they hadn't had many people turn up. But we'd done this thing where we said we were going to run a murder mystery night and we called it Black Tie, which is basically coming in your dinner suits. And that was all we needed to do to make it attractive because suddenly everyone wanted to come and dress up for this event. So we'd basically not properly prepped for this and given up on it being anything other than a few people in a bar drinking cocktails. Someone looked out the window and saw a queue snaking around the block of the students' union and went, oh crap, you realise that we've actually got a full house for this. We were like, oh my God. So basically I just went, right, and immediately said, right, you're this made up character names on the spot. You're this person, you're this person, you're this person. Joe, my wife was, was, uh, eventually she did it. She was guilty. We ended up ad-libbing the entire thing Obviously, oh everyone who God. came in had loads of cocktails, so the logical holes didn't come in. I sat in a corner literally saying, right, go off there and scream, find a body, go on, this right. I don't know, the whole thing was just crazy and did this thing on the fly. Now, it kind of worked, but I know that if that had gone through playtesting and if the people solving the mystery hadn't all been absolutely <laughs> paralytically <laughs> drunk, then it probably wouldn't have passed the standards that you need to pass for one of these games. And I did one other time try and do... Um, again, a more social one, where you're talking about an environment where people are playing roles and so on like that. And, done, and that worked all right, but it took a lot more planning and a lot more precision and a lot of thinking about the different people who'd be involved in it. Um, so when you then abstract that out and say, how do we make this work in a game where you don't know that much about the people that would be playing it? Lots of people would be playing it differently. You don't know what's obvious and what's easy and what's tricky for different people. They must be really challenging to design. And what is I think coming back to the thing that's so incredible is how different they are, um, and even from each other. But the unlock games, more than any of the others, are different to other unlock games because they're the ones that are so heavily driven by the app. Do you know, I know exactly what you mean because I've run a couple of murder mystery nights myself and not out-of-the-box ones, ones that I've designed on my own. They take so much forethought to make them happen and putting that in a card game that's playable multiple times, bravo. Like the designers definitely deserve a cheer, that's for sure. And Mm -hmm. I think the only other one, like I have got, I went out recently for breakfast in North Melbourne and there's quite a small game store in North Melbourne and I can never remember the name of it. Um, but it's right next to the French patisserie. <laughs> if you've uh, if you've been, do you know where? Um, is it Spiel option... Deluxe? Yes, yes, it is. Spiel Deluxe. They've yes. got a, always a tempting little secondhand section at the back of it, yes. where there's always something. You go, oh no, and you end up walking out with it because it's yes. just what you were looking for. <laughs> so they happen to have um, the exit advent calendars from last year on sale, and I remember Rod and I saw them last year before Christmas and they were about $50 and we thought oh well that's a bargain for the number that you get 
they had them on sale in Spiel Deluxe for $25 because they were last year's. So we got ourselves 24 exit games, which we haven't played yet. We do need to have a go and play some of them. And yeah, I think the I think you mentioned to me the difference really between the unlock games and the exit games is the exit games are only playable once. I don't like that. Now, I might take a deep breath because I've played quite a lot of these things and just summarize the differences between all of these things. So for those of you listening at home, if you want to know the differences, I will go quickly and you can always scan back and forth in order to get this. (laughs) Okay, so the exit games are placed on a pack of playing cards. You get a pack of cards together and they will give you clues, stuff that you can do. You will get certain things called strange objects that are usually weird shaped bits of paper. You may cut, fold, adapt, and play with things in whichever way the puzzle wants you to, but they're often about card manipulation, basic kind of puzzles that you see on the cards themselves or on anything else that is there in the package of the game that you've got. So basically anything that is in the box right, it's fair game in an exit game. They're very pure in that sense. The most you're going to get complicated thing you might get is a piece of string. The unlock games have an app that drives you through any possible combination you can, and they run on a timer and they are made to feel like a genuine escape room game. One of the things that does this is that the cards aren't in order. You're constantly pushed to try and find cards as fast as you possibly can, so you can hand them out between you as a team. And the very act of looking for stuff in the deck helps you get that kind of sense of pace, that sense of scrabbling around an actual escape room. On the subject of looking around an actual room, Mystery House is a really innovative escape room system, and apparently the actual game's a little patchy, in which you have this little sort of like room uh, with little holes in it. It's like a 3D thing where you stick in little cards to set up your game, and the little cards allow you to look through it with a torch through the windows and see little clues on the things within the building so you can try and pick them out, and they might allow you to remove back the curtain or to draw something else back and reveal clues hidden deeper in the house to solve the mystery. The undo games try and take you through a set of exercises to try and reverse something that has happened that was bad and come out with the best possible outcome. I've played a couple of these when I was bored at a convention, and I'm apologies. I'm going to give a slightly negative review here because we don't normally like negative review, but I thought they were rubbish. Um, <laughs> the uh, There may be a good undo game somewhere out there, but there is nothing I've seen in those games where the other competitors to those games aren't better. This escape room, the game, which one is the one that's got escape room in a box? Which one's the one that's got the little machine and a rotary dial in it? Escape I think room that might be the box. one that you've got, Jen. I've got that one. Right. So escape room, the game, is just effectively a bunch of escape room puzzles in a box, right? And they are anything that could possibly be stuff in an envelope. Scooby-Doo, Escape from Mystery Mansion, is like an old school adventure game where you effectively find something you need to combine with something else, which you also do in the unlock games to try and do something entertaining and get through a set of maps and open little envelopes with little gizmos in them and feels more like something like Monkey Island or the old adventure games. And on that note, there's a game called Cantaloupe. And Cantaloupe feels exactly like Monkey Island because it basically, a copyright theft aside, may as well be Monkey Island, the board <laughs> game. And... Then there's Escape Room in a Box, which has got a nifty little thing in it. And I've not played it. And you have, Jen. So tell us about Escape Room in a Box. Escape Room in a Box uh, is very much uh, like Unlock, except not just from running on the app. It also runs on a little device that you have in the game where you're inserting different keys in different orders to try and get the box to light up green instead of red. So it's... It still runs on cards. It still runs on clues. It's got a bunch of little envelopes and things in there as well. It is only playable once because you are having to unwrap things and move them around. Oh, you could probably play some of them multiple times because they are in envelopes. But in terms of giving a good summary of all of them, I have to say, Chris... 
Chris and I found a new recording studio with sound effects and we uh, we wanted to find a way to get those in. So <laughs> We're going to start playing with these. Now, I don't have access because Jen's the host on this podcast. She's got the console and got the sound effects and I haven't got the sound effects. And my fingers are sitting here twitching and I think it's probably better this way around. Because God knows what we'd be listening to if you let me get my hand on the sound effects library. I actually didn't get quite everything in there because I was just thinking that there's looking at my recent Kickstarter backers, I recently backed the uh, the Medusa report by Diorama, who are doing a, a set of puzzle adventures. And this is the second in thinking a trilogy intended to be that is effectively like a sort of got lots of spy artifacts in it. And there's some really amazing posh escape room in the boxes that can have come out. Post Curious come out with some stuff that is beautifully artistic and they did one based in tarot cards called The Light in the Mist that's relatively Ooh. affordable and is in itself a beautiful tarot deck. There was a Thinker Thema renewed it not so long ago and did a really nice review of it that's worth watching because that will give you a good account of how that game works. But they have done some beautiful things. I have one set aside to do sometime soon called Adrift that is basically four paintings, four poems and a bunch of mysterious artifacts and they all lead to various codes that you decode. Um, that you put out there was one called the mother of frankenstein where and this got a bit absurd where the full-on kickstarter version of it that i think cost something like i don't know was it like 200 american dollars it was a lot it was huge for a five-hour game or whatever it is it's, it's a lot it comes with like a real vinyl record and a 3d jigsaw wow. that builds into a house and stuff and so there's crazy stuff. There's so many different options for escape rooms. And if you are a fan of escape rooms, I think if I was going to rate from the ones that I've played, I would say that Unlock games are definitely my favourite by far. But I haven't played a lot of them. Um, and I've got a funny story actually about Escape Room in a Box. So we bought Escape Room in a Box for our ex-housemate's boyfriend and we gave it to him for Christmas 2020 and what we thought was really great is that he was her bubble buddy so he was allowed to come around to our house so we had the option to play four-player board games and we were like oh we'll give it to him and then we'll all get to play it during the pandemic he never bought it out so when they broke up he left it behind as this like little stab of, ha ha, I didn't even play with your gift. And we were like, ha ha, you're the sucker because now we get to play with it. <laughs> like it was just, it was the most stupid turnaround and stab at board gamers to be like, oh, you gave me this really cool gift and I'm not going to take it. I'm going to give it back to you. It's like, okay, cool. Thanks. You know, we paid for it. <laughs> That's great. Now we get to play it. <laughs> you're lost, buddy. <laughs> And look, it is good in that it does give you a little physical puzzle to actually play with. It does have things like maps and stuff that will fold out that you can play with as well. So if you're looking for one that's a little more interactive right in front of you rather than having to rely on an app, Escape Room in a Box is great. It doesn't tend to be that expensive. I think we only paid about $40 for it. The unlock games, because you can pass them on to somebody else to play them again on an environmental factor, I think is absolutely fantastic because I don't like the idea of buying something that's got a whole bunch of cardboard and plastic and that kind of thing. And once you've played it once, you can't do anything with it again. That does kind of makes me a little bit uncomfortable. It is a tough one, actually. And that's one of the challenges I've seen designers of some of these games sort of fight with. Exit 
the most overtly, we destroy it, right? You know, kind of, you buy an exit game, it's done, right? Somebody else wants to play that exit game, they have to get it again, it's done. I once bought a pack of exit games where they said, we've played them, but nothing's been destroyed. And I was like, okay. So I basically said, okay, and I got them dirt cheap off someone, opened them up, and of course they had (laughs) done all of these things. Uh, They just left the bits they'd cut off in the packet, but it allowed me to learn and just go through a few of those games and just learn how some of them worked because I played a bunch of the other ones anyway, so I was happy doing that. Um, But it's you can't do that. But there's not a lot in an exit game. So in terms of the environmental impact of getting rid of an exit game, it's not huge. It's still stuff you're throwing away. But in terms of paper, if you bought a newspaper, if you bought a magazine, it's not that far off equivalent yeah. to doing that. The unlock games, obviously, you don't have to destroy. Some of the other more elaborate, more beautiful games where they have destructible parts or things that you might write on or things you might fold, bend, cut, crease, whatever it is, that's when it feels a little bit more difficult to mm. to deal with. Most of them have like a refill pack so that you can get at least one additional game out of it so you play it do the refill or the reset and you hand it on to somebody else and that seems to be the common approach and that at least means that it'll get two games out of it but when you actually look at some of what's gone into some of these and some of those plastic components then that i think is a challenge and that's where the unlock games are are probably are probably the best pure expression of what an escape room could feel like in board game form I sometimes prefer some of the others. Some of the others are more relaxing, like, you know, the post-curious puzzle games. You sit and pour yourself a glass of wine or get a large cup of coffee or whatever it is. You can just sit out and pace yourself. You can do it on your own. You can do it together with others because they're split out so you can solve multiple puzzles at once. But they're something to relax in and savor. That's not Mm -hmm. the escape room experience. The escape room is get locked in a room and can you get out in an hour? or um, as one of the cool ones that I remember doing, get locked in a room that's identical to the room next door because you're both in submarines and as well as doing the escape room, you're also trying to blow each other up. Do you know, Chris, something I was thinking of the other day, speaking of escape rooms and one-offs, we have MeepleCon coming up and we're just about to release tickets. And one thing that I actually thought of that would be super fun to do would be like a one-off escape room type game at MeepleCon. I would be very, very up for trying to get some kind of a game if we can find a suitable space in which we could do do something and obviously make it kind of accessible and make it something that people can engage with. Last year, we ran a quiz. A quiz isn't an escape room, right? But one of the things that I remember I did in a quiz, I'd been to PAX a couple of months before or six weeks before MeepleCon. And at PAX, I went to a panel session led by escape room designers. And this panel session was some escape room designers talking about how they got into designing escape rooms, the differences between their escape rooms. There's one particular one that seems quite unique in, in Melbourne, which I want to try. That was, I'm trying to remember the name of it, Curium Experience or something experience. I can't remember yes. what it's called. Um, the Curio Experience, the, I think it is. That's it, the Curio Experience. And yeah. have you tried, been there? Yes, it's have a you tried that, Jen? Oh, you've, it's right. Brilliant. So you've been there already. So I haven't tried it. And obviously you've already done it. But the designer of that was one of the members of the panel. And anyway, they had this discussion that were talking all the way about this. And every now and again, in the middle of the presentation, they put up a slide that had something a little bit weird in the background on it. And there was a puzzle hidden in the slide. And if someone could solve the puzzle, there was a way in the room that they could indicate that they'd solved the puzzle. 
and they would then get like a cheer or get something thrown out or whatever it is. So when doing the quiz for MeepleCon last year uh, with Trent, I threw in a bunch of similar kind of puzzles. I thought, let's try and do this here. And outside of the core questions, just put in some visual quizzes and so on like that and sort will people see them? Will people spot them? Will people get them? Those little puzzles work really, really well. And actually there's loads of ways you can hide, embed, sneak little things into the event. Perhaps we could even do something across MeepleCon as a whole event. An escape room across MeepleCon. Yeah, that would be really fun. We'd make sure you need to don't disrupt anybody's game. We kind of said, this is the escape from free zone. There are no clues underneath the table of the uh, very, very, very serious game of barrage that's going on in that corner where they're all staring at each other most intently. There is definitely no clues hidden under their feet. Do not go crawling <laughs> under tables. I think that we'd, we'd, we'd need to set some boundaries, right? In Absolutely. fact, I think we might be scaring off some potential meeplecon punters, but we would definitely need to set some boundaries. But maybe there's something we can do. I would be well up for that. Yeah. And, you know, I think the best quiz night I ever went to was one that the answer to every question, so there were six rounds during the whole game. Every round had 10 questions, which is fairly normal. The answer to every question came together to give you 10 clues as to the title of a book. And or the title, I think it was one of them was a title of a book, the title of, no, there were two books, two movies and two songs. And at the end of the quiz, if you could not only get the answers right, but you also got the clues that gave you the title of each of these things for each round as well, you would win extra points for the quiz. And the table that I was a part of, we got five out of the six clues and one of them, I can't remember what the clues and stuff were, but the last one I remember it distinctly because we didn't get it, was the Lord of the Rings trilogy was the answer to the whole thing because the answers during that round were things like rainforests and that kind of thing, you know, like the, the oh, the redwoods, the redwoods in California, which are the tallest trees in the world and that kind of thing. And it was just giving all these hints about mountains and small people and dragons and um, jewellery and that kind of thing. And the the whole thing, like every single answer did give you a clue that should have given you enough information to guess, oh, it was probably Lord of the Rings or something like that. And, yeah, that was the most fun quiz that I've ever been to in my entire life because it was basically a quiz within a quiz. And it was so well done. And I can't imagine how long it took the designers to come up with enough questions to give enough clues that people could guess the answers to all of these questions and get the other clues as well. I love it when there's so many layers in, but those layers, you've got to have something that reaches out. And I think that's always the challenge, isn't it? When you're trying something out is that when is something intuitive when do you dive into something and when is something not for many years and i've i failed this year i was a bad bad dad because of osbunnycon and other things you know kind of took took my kind of attention away but for many years and even now that my boy's like a bit older he still likes it i do an easter egg hunt yeah easter sunday for the big easter egg and the stash of chocolate wherever that might be hidden and you get more and more and more cryptic clues and puzzles. Then you try and gauge them so that they work for, for, for my boy at different ages as he's grown up and grown older and grown cleverer. And also potentially to see whether my, uh, my, my wife might get them if she's helping him out because she doesn't know the answers and, and having a look at it. 
And it's always interesting to look and say, right, which ones do they just get straight away? And where do people just go, I've got drawn a blank. And sometimes that's the same and sometimes that's different. And when can you put like a little hint? The best thing is when, like with good game design, I guess, it was what we were talking about in Obsession almost, that when you've got a way to go forward, even when you're stuck, when you say, I don't know what I'm doing in this particular angle, but I'm stuck on this puzzle, but I can go off and solve that puzzle or take something around. And I've got to get everything in the end to some extent, but I've got something else that I can try. That's often the best way. And that might be that you've got a clue where there's a couple of things that can steer you to help you in the right direction where, you know, you might be able to apply some guesswork. And that's like good crossword clues are like that. Uh, So I used to design occasionally um, sort of the British style cryptic crosswords back in the UK. I remember publishing uh, on the internet a board game related one in, in one of my Facebook groups years ago. And those ones, the British style crossword clues, have that thing where you have like the a straight clue hidden in the cryptic clue for the answer, something that means the thing the answer is. And then you've also got a clue that breaks that word down into a puzzle of some sort. So you've effectively got it twice. And if they're really clever, you'll get special kinds of clues where they manage to do the two in one clue, while you basically, it means the thing and it breaks down into the word, but those are by exception. And one of the great things about that is even though those sorts of puzzles can be fiendishly difficult, they have a couple of different ways where you can get something on top of the fact that you might get some of the letters in the word by solving other clues which then gives you a little bit of clue as to guesswork, or it might steer you towards something that's in the puzzle. So you've got loads of different ways to find your way around it. And I think that, that to me, is, is the killer of a good puzzle, is when you've got, if you're stuck on one thing, you can try a different way. You don't just have to hit the wall. And when it doesn't work is when you're, it's like, if you can't guess this one thing, that's it. You've got nowhere to go. And that's where people get frustrated, I think. There is a way you could make it up to Zach before the end of the year. Have you considered a secret pumpkin hunt? I think that would work if it was a chocolate pumpkin. Exactly, because we know that Zach loves Halloween. So Zach is Chris's son. We've probably mentioned him a few times on the podcast, but he he's like me. I'm obsessed with holidays where you have to decorate and there's some way of getting chocolate in there and, you know, it's a good excuse for a party and, yeah, we kept Chris really busy over Easter this year, so Zach didn't get his normal Easter egg hunt. But a secret pumpkin hunt at Halloween could be very, very fun. That could be quite cool. And my parents are coming to visit Australia and they're landing on Halloween as well, ah. I believe. So that might be quite a fun thing to do as well if we can squeeze that in. So uh, so I have to think about that. I'll have to go hunting for chocolate pumpkins that... And a few more ice blocks because the thing about Halloween in Australia is it can be a little warmer than it is in the UK. Though it wasn't last year. I think with that, but yeah, we could do fantastic things around, around the seasonal stuff. Maybe there's great things that we can do at BeepleCon. Actually, Absolutely. in terms of convention games, do you know Don't Get Got? No. So Don't Get Got is kind of a party game. Well, it is a party game. There's no, no two ways about it. And in Don't Get Got, you'll get a bunch of missions that you're supposed to accomplish. And um, if you accomplish those missions, then you basically be able to give somebody the little card and say, look, I've accomplished this mission. And as you get rid of your missions, you get points and then you win. And there was a convention version of this that they had, like a, a small version with only a few different things that you put in it that were particularly appropriate for being at a board game convention. 
And they brought this to the Aircon convention in, in Yorkshire, where I used to live, during the last Aircon that I went to. So you could play like, you know, Aircon, Don't Get Got. And I think it was just generally sort of convention, Don't Get Got. But in Don't Get Got, something might be persuade one of the other players to say elephant in normal conversation. So, you know, kind of you have to get them to a point where they know that you're all playing this game, but actually they think it's like ridiculously different. So you might lead them to the board game library and go, oh, let's find an animal game. Or where's that one with what's the different animals in that New York Zoo game or something like that? Or, you know, what's the, uh, you know, that I'm not sure. Are there elephants in New York Zoo? I can't remember. Yes, there are. But you'd find some. Yeah. So you go like, oh, what's it? It's the one with the flamingos and the, oh, yeah, the elephants. It's like, aha. Elephant, and you give them the elephant card, and I'll be like, oh, (laughs) take on lots. I got you to say elephant, and yet that's don't get got. Get someone to stand on one leg, you know, and we'll watch them doing it. Get someone to wear your silly hat. I don't know. There's all sorts of things like that, but that's all don't get got is, right? It's a a party game of here are silly things that you're trying to make occur in normal. Is it kind of like convention bingo? It is a kind of bingo, yeah. Back to escape rooms. I find it amazing, Jenna, just how how creative board game designers have been able to get with with making escape from experiences or puzzle solving experiences so exciting and so innovative and always coming out with new ways of doing things but i think it also it says a lot about gamers and the people that play them as well and, and, and we the plan because it does take a little bit of a leap in to go right okay i'm going to uh you know put myself throw myself into this, put myself into this for some of the ones. Some of them are very, very intellectual. You're looking at the puzzle only, and some of them are really about kind of like, I've got to dive in. Some of them are much better with a group. I think Unlock is an example of something that's much better with a group. And it requires definitely one caveat on Unlock that I will say, it does require a certain amount of general knowledge because there are definitely some clues in the Unlock games that... If you don't know a little bit about history or you don't know a little bit about the particular topic of that unlock game, you may find yourself not being able to solve it. A lot of it is fairly general and stuff that most people would know. Think of it like pub quiz type, you know, really basic pub quiz general knowledge. But that's definitely where I think that one unlock game that I was talking about fell down in that the knowledge that it required was not quite general and it was quite specific and that's what made it come undone. So, See, I don't think I've played an unlock game like that, so I'm not sure because I know we've discussed in the past whether the unlock game we've each played that made us go, was the same one. I'm not sure if it was because I found that with Lost in a Shuffle, Lost in a Shuffle. The aeroplane one, the one where you're trying to get... Right, I've not played the aeroplane one. Okay, no, I've not not played that. I played the one I found a little bit for was the werewolf one, just because a couple of bits were so unintuitive. But the the loss in the shuffle game I was talking about earlier, that's got some stuff that does require some knowledge, but it very explicitly says this some of this game may require a little bit of research. Right? There may be clues in there, and you can follow those clues. I didn't have to go for hints for any of those things. I did a little bit of Googling and I went, ooh, that's interesting. I wonder what would happen if I searched for this and followed the trail. And, you know, you did a bit of detective work and that was really, really, really cool. And there are things which you would just know if you grew up in the US more than if you sort of grew up in the UK, that that's certainly true. But it wasn't hard to do that. The Unlock games, I think, are in a position where they can't really get away with that. That's the thing about having a game where it's designed around a timer. Actually, you want to play it with the timer. If you're playing solo 
and an unlock game, I actually do recommend that you ignore the timer and let yourself pause it. You're still going to get to the end and get points, right? You know, it's just that you'll get some points deducted for being late. It won't stop you being able to get access to the clues and do things. You can go way over time on an unlock game, so never be worried about that happening. But you can't expect somebody to sit there and go and look something up on the internet for 20 minutes in the middle of that game to find out what it is. That's just not part of it. The biggest challenge with the unlock game and the biggest cool thing about the unlock game is that they will do wacky things. So there's a little tutorial in every unlock game. It's the same. It tells you the basic mechanics of how you can combine items that you find and use the cards and the numbers in order to generate new numbers to access different cards. Fine. You think that's what the game is made of? Nah. That's about like 10% of it, right? Most of it is any wacky thing they could think of. And in Unlock, it's often any wacky thing they can think of that involves your mobile phone. And the way that the Unlock games use the app and the phone is is in some ways really creative, really imaginative. Quite frankly, it makes like Chronicles of Crime and all the games that just scan like a QR code look like they're just like amateurs right? It is phenomenal. But you will find times where you're like going, no, how was I supposed to know that I was supposed to do that? I just remember what your phone does. It's got cameras. It's got all the different, you know, like sensors. It can sense sound. It can sense light. It can sense the motion of the device. It can do all of those things. And if you play loads of unlock games, you better remember that it can do all of those things because at some point you're going to be like, you're seriously you expected me to do that and it's like it did now the clues are there and that's what's great about playing them together with other people because if you don't spot that clue that says somebody else will say oh this is probably stupid but just try that and it's brilliant when somebody says that and it works that's the best bit it's it's just phenomenal but yeah i think the playing it solo is the unlock games probably aren't the best one if you want to play an escape room puzzle thing solo the exit ones are fine like that i think the some of the the post curious ones or something like lost in the shuffle or light in the mist that you play over a number of days that they're actually better like doing a few puzzles at a time and the advent calendars are like that because the advent calendars are like individual puzzles so you have some that are easy some that are a little bit harder none of them are that hard because they're made for like christmas time your brain's supposed to be gone to rot anyway because it's like the middle of winter <laughs> if you're in germany where they come from so they're not ruthlessly hard like some of the exit games can be but the You've just got one little puzzle and you take a little bite and a little taste at a time and then gradually it sort of builds up until you get to the end. Whereas an unlock game, you are looking to do it all at once. right? Yeah. And I think if you're doing it solo, take one of the things that's more relaxing. Go on Post Curious's site and have a look at some of the games they've got because they are the masters, I think, you know, kind of almost like the OG masters of the artistically beautiful you know, kind of escape from game. But there are plenty of others are like that. If you sign up to their lists, one of the things that's also awesome that they do is they make a really big thing about promoting anyone else who's working in that space. Yeah. And that is why I have played so many of these things. It's post curious and their newsletters. They are dangerous. But if you love these things, that's a fantastic way to find out about more of them. The other really good thing I think about the unlock games is there are some family friendly ones and they give you levels as to the difficulty. So you can get unlock games as an individual game or you can get them as a block of three. So, and I think I've seen, was there one that came out at some point where it was a whole bunch of them all in one box or am I imagining things? And that was just the X. So here's the thing. The unlock games, I think universally in australia coming packs of three 
they when they initially came out, they were just one packs. I know they were definitely yeah. just because they were about twelve dollars when they first came out, and it was just one unlock per box. I don't know if you can get them as just the one anymore. They might only come as three packs now, but. I actually like that they give you the difficulty levels because, you know, the difficulty ones would be perfectly fine to play with your kids that are sort of, you know, depending on your child's age, maybe sort of seven years old and up. You know, if you've got a particularly intelligent six-year-old, they might be involved. But I think maybe like the absolute lowest I would think would be maybe seven. You could probably get away with. I'd say teenagers could play unlocks at any level. Teenagers are way more intelligent than, you know, <laughs> I think I've ever given them credit for. And definitely the ones that are a bit more complex definitely require a bit more general knowledge and require a little bit more worldly experience, that's for sure. Or they require lateral thinking. Yes, lateral thinking. They all require I- that. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. And Look, sometimes that you have to have a bit of worldly experience to have the right kind of lateral thinking and sometimes you're just way overthinking it and you'd be better off playing with a teenager who's like, well, would, why wouldn't you try this, you know, and they have the right kind of lateral thinking to do it correctly. So definitely very universal games, very ageless games in some ways and I think unlock games are really great to bring the family together for something that's just got, you know, that's why I think they're good family games, particularly the unlock ones, because you know it's just going to be an hour and you can get the kids together, you can keep their attention for that period of time and then you're done and dusted. Whereas, you know, you got old traditional Monopoly and Game of Life and some of those games are so long that it just doesn't give you that opportunity to really have a fun family game night where it's not going to go on for hours and hours and hours and hours. So definitely something to consider if you're looking for some family games as well. And we, we shouldn't just like, cause it's a gamer thing about insulting monopoly. Uh, it, it's become <laughs> old, right? Let's give monopoly some credit. Monopoly always runs to between 90 minutes and two hours at maximum because at one hour 45 is when the fighting starts. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So don't let anyone tell you that you can go over three hours playing Monopoly. I've never seen anybody have the stamina. <laughs> and that, um, and, and after contradicting myself there, because because uh, we're not obviously talking about Monopoly now, I think that's always a dangerous topic on a board game podcast. <laughs> Unlock is almost certainly the the kind of escape room game that most uniquely typifies an escape room, but there's a massive Absolutely. amount of puzzle games out there and puzzle designers out there. If you are interested in these sorts of things, the world is your oyster. Uh, just just take a look and explore. There are some imitation ones which are a bit naff. You don't need to go there, right? You, there are so many of them out there. If you do a little bit of research and only have the good ones, you'd be playing for years. Uh, so you don't actually have to play the rubbish ones, which also makes it a little bit challenging for, for the people breaking into that market. But, you know, high standards helps us all. Absolutely. And Hmm. on that note, this has been an absolutely fantastic episode. I've really enjoyed chatting with you, Chris, about, you know, obsession and all the unlock games and all that kind of thing, the escape room games in general. You know, it's, I think we're very lucky in some ways that the last couple of years, probably the last five to 10 years, has brought out some genres of board games that I never thought would exist. And, 
It's just been such an amazing time for all of us as part of this community to experience such an amazing amount of growth. And as much as we all complain about Jesus Christ, there's so many different games on Kickstarter, that's such a good thing that we've got so many creative, fantastic people out there in this community that are all trying to bring together their fantastic ideas for us as gamers to experience something new and interesting. Amen to that. Yeah. And on that note. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. You can find our details for Melbourne Meeples down below. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. You can catch us on our website, which is melbournemeeples.org.au. And we will catch you in next time's podcast. See you next time, guys.